search the world But it couldn't fill me Man's empty praise and treasures that fade Are never enough Then you came along It put me back together Every desire is now satisfied here in your life. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. Nothing better than you, Lord, there's nothing.
we are going to uh, carry on here in Philippians chapter 2. So if you want to flip there, verses 19 through 30. Uh, there are some red uh, pew Bibles in front of you. If you need a Bible, please grab one of those. Philippians is, you know, yay through your Bible or so, uh, halfway through your New Testament. As you're flipping there, I will read this. This is from the word of the Lord, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not just on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So one more time, we can't pray enough, right? Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, uh, as I was just reading this morning, Lord, nothing you say ever goes out without accomplishing its intended purpose. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning you would do so through me, that it would be your words that people hear and not my own. Lord, we recognize the other churches that surround us this morning. We thank God for those churches, and we pray for those churches. That right now, as the saints are gathered in those buildings, as men and women just gathering to worship you and to love you, Lord, we pray that you would bless them, Lord, that your word would also go out with great power and great unction, Lord, and that because of all the churches here that love you, that, that love the gospel, the good news, and are devoted to it, Lord, that this city would see a new era of renewal and revival here, Lord, that is not just based on one church or one personality, but Lord, as a co-work of all of us together laboring for the good news in this city. So Lord, please bless them. I pray for those this morning who are sick, Lord, or at home, hopefully, if they're sick, and in need of healing. That, Lord, that you would heal them now, Lord, those who have physical pains or, or ailments, Lord, that you would, you would uh, just touch them, Lord, miraculously heal them now. And, Lord, we pray for our nation's leaders in this just very vitriolic time, Lord, that you would just give them wisdom, Lord, equip them with the wisdom from above to lead and to lead us well in our country. Lord, we love you so much. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Well, this is uh, New, the New Testament scholar, Gordon Fee, uh, called this passage. He said, this is the stuff that makes a letter a letter. We are reminded by looking at these verses that Paul was a human being. He was writing to other real human beings, living in real circumstances, interacting with real people, and interacting with other leaders. This is kind of a personal and more intimate part of this letter. 
in uh, some of those leaders, right, in that church of that day. Uh, this was kind of a challenging sermon because it is a personal part of a letter. Sometimes I wonder if Paul and some others would look forward and say, oh, you, you put that in the Bible too? And of course, like, I think, you know, God intended what they wrote to be in our scriptures, of course, but some of it really is personal, right? But these personal parts sometimes are more touching because we realize these are human beings, right? This is real people, and just like you and I are real people. And so thankfully, God inspired these words for us this morning. But what I want to do is take a, take a step back. I want to look at bigger and larger pictures. That's what I usually like to do anyhow. And really help to place this personalized portion of this letter in a greater kind of worldview arena here. This sermon will be connected a little bit to last week's sermon as we revisit leadership structures in the local church and also how you and I are to uh, aim to reflect them as they are found in Scripture because it's not just about leaders but also just about us regular, I don't know, that's a bad way to say that, all of us Christians, sorry. However, even the Bible is found written to specific people living within a specific worldview. And just like Paul was doing in this original text, Scripture always likes to pick a fight with cultural worldviews, right? The good news of Christ is in breaking into this world the true original worldview, if you will. And it's in breaking into this world to expose the fraudulent natures of the worldviews that surround us. And this text does so here. For the Romans, this, this Roman colony of Philippi, when they read it, and it also does the same for us this morning. I've tried throughout the past seven week, or six weeks or so to give everyone a, uh, a basic kind of introduction of Roman social structures and hierarchies in this sermon series. If you haven't listened to those sermons yet or missed a couple, please listen to those, kind of get caught up on, on that conversation. And, uh, but I hope you see how crucial it is to understand them if one is to understand why Paul wrote what he wrote to these Roman Christians living in Philippi. And we will once again touch on some of that this morning, but more importantly is we have to kind of build that bridge from 2,000 years ago to present times. We need to do some worldview work ourselves. You and I also live in a very specific time and place, and it is very difficult sometimes to imagine thinking about life differently outside of the world that we are currently in, but I hope to kind of help you do that today. So answers of meaning, of purpose, of successes and failures, of reasons to follow and reasons of not to, right? How things work, how businesses and your work and even our church structure and organization is largely in modern day times defined by our modern kind of capitalistic worldview. And there was a guy who was alive. If you're a nerd like me, you like to read old dead people. And I love reading stuff from centuries ago, right? Uh, it, it was critiqued by a German sociologist named Max Weber. Weber was a sociologist who lived at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, and he was kind of observing our rapidly industrializing world, and he started thinking about the impact that this would have on future generations in our day-to-day -day reality. We now call this time modernity, or maybe post-modernity, or something like that, as people argue. But Weber said that within this newly built modern world of machines and factories and assembly lines and bureaucracies, largely a product of, of capitalism and the Industrial Revolution of the late 1800s, there would be a three-step process in our approach to how we work and even how we live. Number one is method. 
Number two is reflection, and number three is calculating or assessing the methods right through your reflection. Now, bureaucracies exist to create the method. Workers reflect and carry out that method, and then the method is calculated concerning its success, which is usually given, right? The, the, the rule book of, of success is profit and growth. This basic process is defined by Weber, and in it we find kind of the blueprints for so much of our modern-day world, for almost every business practice and approach in our nation. But however, I wonder if even he would have been aware just how far-reaching this has gotten into our psyche, into our identity as human beings, into our understanding of ourselves and our very identity as people. If a business can produce profit through more and more efficient means, right? As you think about it more, as you reflect upon that process more, how can we get more efficient to make more and more money? Then you and I can begin judging ourselves up against such a paradigm and a formula for success. Suddenly you and I feel the need to also enter into this machine-like method of living that will, upon as you make your own reflections about your own life, Hopefully, you can look and find these calculable results, evidence of success, right? If you fit into this American method of success, then our identity is wrapped up in your successes or failures in that machine. It is really the same way we judge the value of things we use. We just bought our house, and it came with a brand new oven that is most definitely the worst oven that's ever been invented. It takes me sometimes... Well, I can't even get the thing to start. I have to, I have to call Alex, and she takes her five or ten tries. It's, it's such a terrible oven. And, and you think about, like, who even allowed this to be sold? But as you're trying to use it, the method, it doesn't work. Like, this is not efficient, and we have got to get rid of this thing and buy a new one. And it has thus little value for me because it doesn't work, right? But you and I often approach everything with this mindset, a lot of things at least, as if everything you and I included our machines to be finely tuned to produce greater results. This is how we approach education. It's how we approach our job. It's no longer a calling, but it's a job, right, that you have to get more efficient in. And the experts tell us that we should approach our daily habits like this as well. Do you want to grow as a person? Finely tune your habits to increase your efficiency to get more things done, to get that machine working more efficiently, milking every hour of our day for productivity. And therefore, the result of this modus thinking is valuing what is most efficient, what brings about the quickest results, and that receives our stamp of approval. Now, I say all of this because in the past 50 years, this kind of thinking has entered into the church slowly. We've slowly allowed the church to be developed into its own profession, its own industry, to become its own machine with new standards of success and excellence and systems that can produce in an efficient manner uh, calculable results. The pastor's study has become an office. Church meetings are called business meetings and the things accomplished in them business items. The church's product has become people. How do we get more of those people in here? And our method is church marketing and getting the word out, similar to any kind of other small business. As more people come in and finances increase through tithes and offerings, as if both of those things increase, the machine known as Emmanuel Church then has the appearance of success. Listen, the temptation of being around a group of pastors and say, oh, what pastor of a church you mean? How many people do you have going to your church? Oh, 800. You must be, you know. That can happen, right? That can happen. Listen, 
I don't have all the answers, but I can tell you this at minimum, this, this was not always the case in church. It's somewhat of a modern day phenomenon. Before our modern era, church was not understood this way or approached this way. This is all a product of our modernity, right? This, this modern times, the church becoming another machine and factory to be finely tuned. Now, why am I going on to this tangent? Because what we see in this passage is Paul recommending to the Philippian church two men for leadership. I was once again stunned as I slowly reflected upon this at why he was recommending them compared to why I often see leaders recommended to churches today. Paul was not a modern. He didn't live in the world of machines and factories and assembly lines. He didn't live in the worldview of capitalism. However, his recommendations of these two men and the reasons why he did, they supersede these cultural things. They represent God's heart of what he values in church leadership and by implication, not just church leaders, but all of us Christians. It is a direct challenge up against the Roman worldview and also a direct challenge against ours, the American worldview. You are not a machine. Your value is far above whatever achievements you've made through finely tuned methods and training. And I hope that we can see these things this morning. As once again, hopefully you are seeing it by now in the sermon series, that as a Christian, by his spirit, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. And being in Christ... You were brought into participation of this idea of the master story as we've talked about that is found in chapter 2 in Philippians. That although Jesus was in heaven receiving all the honor and glory due to his divinity, he set all of that aside, not his divinity, but all the honor that was due to it, and he took on flesh. And not just any flesh, but a poor flesh, right? In the form of a slave-like human being on the bottom rungs of society. And as became this God-man, although he was the author and creator of life, he gave his own life for you and I and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did not consider his own interest before others, but even considered others as more important than himself, as Paul explicitly says, was the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. The Christian life, after you believe and after you realize that Jesus has saved you from your sins and have delivered you from the domain of darkness and brought you through his obedience and through his death and resurrection to his kingdom, it becomes one of continually looking back at Jesus, continually looking back at how he lived and knowing that this is our new way of life in Christ. The Holy Spirit is always working and working and working to turn our eyes toward Jesus. Are you living for yourself or for God and others? Are you clinging to any sort of status and leveraging it for others or using your own status to serve others like Jesus? Our participation in it always seems to flip modern worldviews upside down in unexpected ways, and they'll be happening again today. So Paul recommends these two men— not for their glories of success, of charismatic leadership and high church attendance and increased tithing upon the ministries they oversaw, not because of grand accomplishments in ministry and book deals and speaking tours, but rather he commends these two men for leadership at the Philippian church because of their evident participation in the Jesus story through their living out of their allegiance to him by faith. Paul is absent. He's in jail. 
and he is combating this temptation of a cult of personality with Paul's absence. It's like, we can't do this without you, Paul. He's like, I don't know. Yeah, you can. And I want to send people to help you out here that's not me, right? He wants, to know, he wants the church to know the kind of leaders they need, which may be different than what you or I expect. So I want to dive in. Enough of the long introduction. Let's look at verses 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But ye know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, Paul uses very strong language as he describes Timothy, remarkably strong language. Paul says that there is no one like him. And the Greek literally says that Timothy is one in soul with Paul's ministry of the gospel. And he lists four specific things concerning Timothy and his ministry. That he is genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. That he does not seek his own interests like other presumably other people do, other leaders do, but rather he, by implication, is seeking the interests of Jesus. And he served as a child does with a father alongside of Paul, becoming, literally, it says, a slave for the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, once again, if you have your listening ears now, is that week after week we've repeated that Philippians 2 story, Paul is intentionally bringing us back to it right? He is intentionally bringing us back to it. Jesus and his patterns of living continually informs us on the patterns for our own lives. Jesus, being that true human being as he was, shows us how humans are to live in this fallen world in him, his church. It is ascribed in two, four, verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, as a human being who does not look after his own or her interests, but after the interests of others the same attitude that is found in Christ. By Paul not being able to physically be there with the Philippians, he knows that they do need leadership. They need someone to lead. Therefore, Paul is on the hunt to send someone to assist and to help. In the Roman culture, it was very easy to raise up a leader within a specific group as someone to be honored up and above the rest. In the infant church of the day, uh, every church really being less than 30 years old, and, and most every church that was in existence at that time could trace their origin back to Paul or one of the leaders that Paul trained up and sent out. In the Roman worldview, it would have been just easy for Paul to take advantage of that and say, yes, these are all my churches. Yes, I'm the one to be honored. Philippians, I know I'm not there right now, but I need you to listen to me. I'm going to vicariously lead this, you know, through this jail cell here and tell you what to do from a long distance away. That would have been more of the Roman expected way to do it. But yet here he is delegating such honor to other leaders in his stead. And that's Paul fighting up against this Roman worldview of his day. So he recommends Timothy to them. And we need to look at what things he found that are worthy to mention, things that would qualify Timothy for such a leadership role with his church in Philippi. Now, Paul, he spaced this very intentionally. He placed his personalized, uh, personalized letter 
uh, portion of the letter after the story for a reason, because he wanted first to describe in thorough Jesus's patterns of living and list these two leaders afterwards and, des- and describe them because he wants the church, this is important, he wants the church of Philippi to know that if they are to embrace any other leader, the primary filter by which their acceptance of these leaders uh, are is their participation in the Jesus story. Do they resemble Jesus? Do they lead like Jesus? Timothy will be genuinely concerned for their welfare. Timothy has submitted himself, even as a slave would, to the good news of Jesus Christ, to the labor and ministry of Christ. And these are the words that Paul used to describe how Jesus lived, and Timothy's participation of it in his own life is why Paul is recommending him. Now, let's move on to Epaphroditus who we know was named after Aphrodite, which was one of the Greek gods. So this is a former Greek pagan having become a Christian. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister in my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So a little background on this guy Epaphroditus. Most scholars believe that he was the person who had the letter that Paul wrote and delivered it to the church in Philippi. Now, he was with Paul because in chapter 4, we learned that Epaphroditus had actually been sent from the church to Paul to deliver while he was in jail, delivered to him some kind of financial gift to help him persevere as he was in jail. But it seems that Paul is sending him back in a premature manner, And Paul felt the need to give some sort of explanation as to why he was doing so. But on the way there, maybe in delivering the letter to Paul, or delivering the gift to Paul probably, he got sick. We know nothing about what sickness this was. History is silence, but we do know that he almost died. He risked his life to get Paul this financial gift, right? But God had mercy on him. He survived. And Paul said, and he also had mercy on me because he's a close friend and he lived. And God also had mercy on me, right? Now, Paul uses very specific language, not directly reflected in my translation, maybe some of yours. But he said, literally speaking, he said, Epaphroditus drew near to the point of death. And what Paul is doing there is taking the same exact phrase that Jesus was brought to the point of death, In Philippians 2, death on a cross, what he is doing is saying, Epaphroditus, like Jesus, he stuck his neck out, right? He almost died, unlike Christ who did die, but Epaphroditus in the spirit of Jesus was willing to give his life for you to get this gift to me. And that is why I commend him. Other things that he commends him for. He's mentioned as Paul's brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger. That's literally apostle there, right? Lowercase a apostle. Minister, which is more like uh, the word kind of means one who serves, right? A servant like Jesus was said to be in Philippians 2. And he risked his life to complete what was lacking in Paul's service to the church since he was in jail. And he requests that Epaphroditus receive all honor and joy 
showing that maybe they would have been offended, maybe, at Paul sending him back so early since they was hoping Epaphroditus could minister to Paul. But Paul is basically, basically saying, yes, thank you for sending him, but you need him more than me, so I'm sending him back to you. Be happy about it. Don't be mad at me. He didn't abandon me. I'm sending him to you. This is the personal nature of this portion of the letter. Now, we can sum up these two early church leaders as people who participated in their Christian living and mirroring the life of Christ. People who were known for living out these patterns of how Jesus lived and served and ministered while he was here. This is what made them recommended to the church by Paul. As we mentioned earlier, all of this was up against Roman cultural norms. Paul should have been aiming to secure his own honor, his own place of leadership, and not give it away to others. If Paul was a good Roman leader, he would have been trying to establish himself more, but rather he delegates. And this is Paul once again challenging their way of understanding the world. Now, the story of Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection, and the idea of although I have this status, I don't want to exploit it for my own gain, but rather be willing to set it aside and serve others. As a Christian, after salvation, this is our true, our north, like our, our compass. Where is true north? It's Jesus. It's looking to Jesus. He is our true north. If we ever feel lost or we feel wandering, Jesus becomes the continual compass by which we always must be able to look to and reorient ourselves. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, you and I, far from living inside of the Roman culture and worldview, we have our own. And I'm going to do a little bit of an argument, maybe from silence, but I think it's still legitimate. I don't know. Hopefully it is. I think it is, right? I try to imagine this passage if written purely within like 21st century, our cultural worldview in modern times. And I think it would have sounded something like this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Then I am be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who can draw a large crowd through his charismatic and funny preaching. Not like the other preachers stuck in small churches with little crowds. You know Timothy's proven worth through his many seminary degrees and book deals, and how like an intern he served alongside some of your favorite celebrity pastors and has been mentored by them. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. I have thought necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow author of books and fellow preacher who has toured with me and done many conferences with me around the country. For he has been longing for you all to see your numbers grow and to see your church change the world to become a major influence in your region, just like his church that he started years ago. Indeed, in his continual book tours and conference preaching, he got sick, but God had mercy on him. And I'm eager to send him to you, for he nearly, you get what I'm trying to do here. This is tongue-in-cheek. I want to clarify, God does raise up people to do that work, and we need them. I benefit from them, those men and women who do write the books. and do. I'm not bashing those people. We need those people, right? I don't want to be one, but God raises up people to do it, right? And that's good. But what is wrong, though, is if you look to those things as if they are our measuring tape of success. If you look at such resumes and say, well, that church is special because their pastor has that resume, that's my southern accent. Resume. Did you hear that come out? It happens sometimes. That church has arrived. That church has made it. We have a while before we can have such a leader. And I'll never be as a regular old Christian person in this Christian world. I'll never do that kind of work for the kingdom. Please notice how Paul describes these two guys. They served the churches. They served. They lived like Jesus even sharing in the harder, more suffering-based parts of Jesus' story. And in Paul's mind, these are the things that qualified them to lead. Those are the things that gave them the qualification for Paul to say, this is why I'm sending them to you. 
when you and I look at ourselves and other people and names according to their accomplishments and all the accolades that they have received in life and finding soul value just in those things, what we are doing is placing value on them through that lens of modernity. We are seeing them, this, this method, this, this formula that they entered into, and they accomplished all these results that looked very successful on the outside. And like a factory or assembly line, we try to create more, stru- more structures <clears throat> to output more leaders that do that kind of thing, right? Or we try to compare ourselves next to those kind of leaders, and we, and we look at the stuff we've done, and we think, oh, wow, what have I done with my life. Elon Musk reads two books a day. I've read two books the past 10 years. I must be a weakling here. We feel weak. We feel insignificant. We think Jesus has some extra loving for those men and women. But for us mere regular people, he'll shuffle in quietly into heaven. But the trumpets of announcement won't, <clears throat> won't sound when we arrive like they did for Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. He'll look at us and say, oh, it's you? Get in here. Oh, Mother Teresa, let's sound the trumpets. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? That's not the case. Not even close. This is what makes this text so powerful today for you and I. We are given new standards by which to understand what kind of leaders the church needs, people who pursue living like Jesus. That's it. That's the standard. But wait, not just for leaders, but for you and I, for all Christians for all time. Do you, know why not, you want to know why people get so burnt out today? It's because we bought into the lie that we all must have these big accomplishments in our life. And we spin ourselves into a frenzy trying to do so. Schools treat their students like products on an assembly line, training them to reach the stars at the point of education is just to get some skill-based job to make money. And we as parents think that they must also receive expert training and, make, uh, and get musical lessons in sports at like five years old so they can be the next Cal Ripken or Paul McCartney. And our schedule maxes out as we run from this place to that place entering to this machine of productivity and accomplishments, hoping that the result will be some achievement that will equal greater status or equal greater accomplishments or greater money so we can find more meaning and find more purpose. Timothy and Epaphroditus were well known by how they served Jesus and how they served the church, not by their book deals or the number of attendees in their churches, not by the crowds that they drew. Paul didn't seem concerned to mention anything like that. And this is crucial. We must pull ourselves from modernity and this idea of a method that brings these grand measurable results uh, that that, there are prophets or in church terms, high attendance and high giving and lots of baptisms. And we must stop holding these as some formula to achieve at all costs. These sort of achievements and accolades are not our judgment of worth. It is not Emmanuel's judgment of success. You and I are all given a resume when we become Christians. Did you know this? We are given a declaration, a sheet of paper, if you will, that says this. Jesus has already done this stuff on your behalf. He has perfectly pleased God on your behalf. He has accomplished a perfectly righteous life before God because you could not. And because of what he has done for us, God loves you. You already have supreme value before him because Jesus has supreme value before God. 
Jesus' resume becomes your resume through the Spirit. His worth becomes your worth. And as a Christian, Jesus is inviting us, saying to, he's saying, be in my life through his Spirit. Paul's favorite phrase is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, all throughout the New Testament, because he wants us to be in union with him spiritually through our allegiance to him as our Lord and as our King. Because he has accomplished all this stuff for us, He wants us to have new eyes to see all people as those who are also in great need for their eternal salvation. He wants you to see the grandest and mightiest work to be done on earth right now may just be very mundane tasks of sharing the gospel alongside of often hidden works of love and service. It is mostly found when we are on our hands and knees serving others not climbing mountains or getting that book deal or a PhD. Some of us will have that work. Most of us probably will not. And you are not any less valuable because of it. Our highest concern is that we are participating in Christ through our allegiance to him as our king. Why Timothy and Epaphroditus are recommended to this church by Paul and allowing God to bring us into whatever role that he decides as we pursue Jesus in this life. Now, for most of us, this work of being in Christ and participating in him, if you will, it will be mundane. One of my favorite people in all the Bible is somebody you probably never heard of, okay? It's Rufus's mama. You're like, Rufus is in the Bible? And who is Rufus's mama? It's there, right? It's just one sentence, but it's there. In Romans chapter 16, we see Rufus mentioned. Paul says, make sure you tell Rufus hello. And make sure you tell Rufus's mom hello as well. He doesn't name her because everybody's probably like, well, of course we know Rufus's mom. Of course, Rufus's mom. We know who she is. And Paul says this about her. He says, because she was a mother to me as well. She wasn't just Rufus's mom. She was a mother to me as well. Right? Who's ever had a surrogate mother in their life? Right? You're in college and you don't know how to wash your own clothes and somebody else's mom is like a few miles away and they're like, just bring your clothes over here. I'll take care of your clothes. We've all had those people, right, that, that actually guide us and teach us and nurture us and make sure we're eating vegetables and not just pizza every single night, you know, or, or actually ensuring that we're taking care of ourselves, that are guiding and leading us when our own mother is not present. I've had many surrogate mothers. My mother-in-law has been that for almost 10 years now since my mom is still in Georgia, right? Those surrogate mothers' work is often mundane work, regular old day-to-day living as a woman looking to take care of somebody else because she knows that the mother is not there and they need a mama. I need a mama still. Who else needs a mama? We all need that figure in our life no matter how old we are, right? I know for a fact that's many of you in this room. Even some of you have stepped into my family's life, right, to be that surrogate mother with us, right? God saw it fit that Rufus's mom would be in Scripture for her mundane work, mentioned forever and ever as Paul's surrogate mom, because the world needs surrogate mothers for sons and daughters who are wayward and need one, for sons and daughters who grew up without moms or who are away from their moms. Now, I mention this because I think it's awesome. It is a very mundane occupation, perhaps, but is is it a worthy one? You better believe it. You see how regular that is? Do you see how such a life of service is actually kingdom work if done in the name of Jesus? She freed up Paul to minister and she cared for him as he was out and about doing his thing. So friends, we must adjust our understanding of value in Jesus' kingdom. 
and the kind of work that we attach the words of value and success to. All of this that we're looking at today is upside down in thinking, as often is the case with Jesus's upside down kingdom. This is what we can draw from Paul's recommendation of his friends Timothy and Epaphroditus, and I pray we as a church understand these things as we enter into the next chapter at Emmanuel Church. So as we close, I'll mention a few things here, a few questions. I've heard from so many, including so many of you sitting in this room right now, telling me quietly, because we know that many have suffered beneath COVID, right? But I'm looking at my own life, and so many of you, I don't know how many, a lot of you have talked about this, and people back in Jersey that I just moved from, they share very similar kind of stories that, you know, it's kind of been a blessing for our family because we're having meals together. Like, we're with each other more. Our schedules have been, like, slashed, and we're hanging out. And it's, 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 it's been kind of nice for us as a family. Now, if, if that's you today, and I, I suffer from the busyness syndrome as well, right? What does this, and I've been telling myself this. I'm more preaching to myself right now. What does this mean about my life before, right? Why was I so busy before? What was I trying to do spinning my wheels with this maxed out schedule? What was I trying to achieve? What was I looking for? What were the motives behind my busy schedule, right? Or my, was I more concerned about trying to achieve something for my kids or for myself, right? Why does this slowed down life feel more like flourishing in Jesus? Was I aiming for things I shouldn't be aiming for, trying to achieve things I shouldn't be achieving? Were my values messed up? How can I take this unique pandemic time to ask those questions? Number two, oftentimes our greatest insecurities lie at our lack of achievements in America, or our greatest pride comes from what we accomplished. Could it be that we must look to Christ first, recognizing that if there's any achievement that matters before God, any achievement at all that truly brings about meaning and purpose to know that it has already been achieved on your behalf? And if you or I want to experience now the fullness of joy, that we are called to in allegiance to participate in this new life of Christ, right? Who cares what your neighbors think or family or friends? What if you pursued such a life and didn't even tell anyone but just loved and served others in the name of Jesus and didn't brag about your accomplishments in Jesus but you just did them quietly, didn't Instagram them or anything? Here is where you will find flourishing, happiness, and the heart of God, I believe. And lastly, as we aim to restart and recultivate life here at Emmanuel, I want to learn from Paul's words here, to look at Timothy, to look at Epaphroditus, and raise our goals to what they were, what we see here in this text. Numbers may come, tithings may increase, attendance may explode here, but like Timothy, who was in Christ and mirrored the work and attitude of Christ, are we more concerned about making disciples here, about each other's interests more than our own? Like Christ, have we all become a slave to the gospel? What about Epaphroditus? Are we risking our necks for one another if necessary? Like Jesus, who gave himself up for us, we are called to step into that, to make disciples of one another who grow into those patterns of living, if I understand this correctly. That is how we measure growth at Emmanuel. That is our scale of growth. You can have a big church with lots of numbers and lots of money and not be a healthy church, right? Numbers are important. People matter. I'm saying all that. I know that to be the case. But what seems to be most important in Scripture is as a Christian, being in Christ and mirroring him in your character and your growth as disciples and multiplying yourselves by making other disciples who walk in the same manner. Now, that's a healthy church. And I pray that we can find that here in Emmanuel by the grace of God. So let me pray. I want to call the worship team up. We have one more closing song. As they're coming up, let me pray. 
Jesus, I say these things uh, not lightly because I have been guilty of participating in all this stuff, of just being so heavily concerned about how many seats were filled and looking and oftentimes saw myself preaching to the empty chairs more than I am preaching to the ones that have people in them. Because I get obsessed with empty pews and empty chairs, thinking that oh, I'm doing something wrong. Why aren't more people here? You know, what can we do right to get more people here? And it's a trap. It, it really is a, a, a cultural, uh, worldly trap that is not of you. Lord, your spirit is in those who know you this morning. You are present in those people here. And Lord, your work in their life as a pastor is what I need to be concerned with as a church that we need to be focused on, Lord. And as you look outward to our community and we see the brokenness outside of our doors, we see the, 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 the pain of, of everything from poverty to broken families to addictions to all those things that surround us all around our community, that we look at that and our heart breaks knowing they just need to know Jesus. They just need to meet their Lord. They need to have a transformed life in Him to not just receive eternal life, but receive fullness of life even now. Lord, these are the things that our heart needs to be concerned for. Would you please align us to this, Lord? Please, as a, as a true compass, just reorient us to these things, Lord. Because those are the things that truly matter. Thank you that you have secured all this work, Lord. We can't work to gain your love. We can't increase your love for us. We can't get you to love us more than you already do. It's maxed out. And your love cannot escape us. We cannot lose that love. It is sealed on us, Lord. But may we labor because of the things that we have received. Labor with all of our hearts to see your love expand to this city and to this church. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.